0: Welcome to the Sidcast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation.
1: One of the great wonders of the U.S. military is that they truly are Mm. nonpartisan, and they truly do respect political appointees.
0: This is Sid Finkelstein. Welcome to the SidCast. It's a pleasure to be with you again. You know, I was in Washington DC not that long ago and I dropped by the law offices of Charles Chuck Blanchard to talk about his career and the lessons and insights he's picked up over the years. It didn't take long in our conversation to get Chuck to open up about his days clerking for Justice Sandra Day O'Connor on the US Supreme Court. You know, an era where left and right were less pronounced than the Supreme Court, probably a little bit more balanced in outlook than today. What I found fascinating in talking to Chuck about Justice O'Connor was her humanity, the way she cared about her clerks, trying to be fair and balanced as well as she could be, and also Chuck's profile of Justice O'Connor as a real person. Comparisons to today's Supreme Court inevitably became part of the conversation and I found Chuck's views on current Chief Justice Roberts to be particularly insightful given where the court is today. Who's Chuck Blanchard? He served as a general counsel at the U.S. Department of the Army. That was uh, late 1990s into early 2000s. He was also the General Counsel and Chief Ethics Officer for the U.S. Air Force from 2009 to 2013. This experience puts Chuck in a particularly good place to help us understand why President Trump pardoned those four naval officers who were convicted or indicted on charges of being war criminals. When I asked Chuck about that, he didn't mince his words at all. And he considers the entire episode an enormous mistake with potentially far-reaching and negative consequences. It's hard to imagine why a president would provide official sanction to officers. officers. Officers who committed war crimes. And when Chuck referenced the role of a Fox News talking head in influencing the president to do something that really virtually the entire military hierarchy and rank and file are against, we all get a better sense of how things work in Washington, D.C. these days. Bring Chuck into the Sidcast podcast. Turns out to be an eye opener and an episode worth paying close attention to. Really fascinating, great conversation. Let's welcome Chuck Blanchard to the Sidcast. Welcome to the SIDCAST, Chuck. It's good to have you. Great to be here. Thank you. And it's great to be here, actually, in your offices in Washington, D.C., with beautiful views out at the Washington Monument. Is that what it is? It is, in the Trump Tower, and well, lots of buildings. <laughs> exactly. How does somebody become Secretary of the Army, Secretary of the Air Force, and where does that come from? That's not your typical career. Path. Well, it was a general counsel. General, general, general counsel is what I meant. Thank
1: you. Yeah, it was, and I go to all things in Washington. It's a series of accidents. <laughs> oh. I had lived in Arizona. I was politically active, was in the legislature, and then in 1994, ran for Congress and lost. But I had worked for Bill Clinton's election campaign, and so they tried to find a position for me in government. And they found one as Barry McCaffrey's chief legal counsel, which I did for several years. And one of my clients there was a former California legislator, a guy named Tom Umberg, whose best friend got nominated to be general counsel of the Army. And he was looking for a brand new general counsel. So I I was literally my first interview was at a Christmas party at the Umberg's house. And then I went through the full formal interview. And I was because of Tom, I was the army's choice. At the time was going to the same church as a Deputy Secretary of Defense, John Hamry. So I became the DOD choice. And I joke, but it's pretty true that I was a thrilling choice for the White House because I was one of the few Democrats that actually voted for President Clinton who was going to be appointed to a Pentagon position. Now, was- <laughs> Explain that a little Well, at the time, a lot of the Pentagon appointees were former Republicans, Uh and so it was somewhat rare. Uh, Louis Codera was a Democrat, I was a Democrat, but it was actually fairly rare at the time for Democratic officials to be appointed in the Pentagon. It was pretty dominated by former Republicans. And that's still true today, right? It was less true during the Obama years. I mean, yeah. Secretary Gates was a holdover, and my boss, Secretary Donnelly, from the Air Force, was a holdover. But it was less true in the Obama
0: administration. So why do you think that this is generally true, that people that come from the military or have careers in the military, or officers and in your case also helping to run the military, are more likely to be Republican I think it's more what people are interested in.
1: In any given administration among Democrats, there's a huge line for every position at the Department of Justice, a huge line for everyone at the Department of Interior or EPA, people who really want those jobs. Mm-hmm. And in my experience, it's a smaller line for a lot of the national security positions. I think that's changing. I think the Obama administration was very intentional by trying to uh, recruit the next generation. Mm -hmm. And so our special assistants were very young lawyers or very young policy people who are now at think tanks and I think are going to be the next generation. One thing the Obama administration did well in the Department of Defense was create a cadre Mm -hmm. of folks who understood the Department of Defense Mm -hmm. who are now in think tanks and law firms, Universities, and I think next Democratic administration
0: will be a great talent pool for the next administration. That's very interesting. I did a podcast a number of months ago with Jake Sullivan, who you may know, who worked for both Hillary Clinton at one point, Joe Biden at one point, and of course uh, President Obama, and helped negotiate the Iranian nuclear deal. You interacted with him as well. Yes. Were you part of that negotiating team in any? Way? No, I was not involved. There were folks in DOD that were involved, but not the Air Force General Counsel's Office. Right. So go back to the question on why is is that Republicans relative to Democrats seem to congregate more towards military jobs or say it a little bit differently. And I don't know if this is true, but I get that impression. The Republicans are more likely, ex-military, are more likely to vote Republican than Democrat.
1: With the military, I think it's, a lot of this very cultural. If you look at the officer corps, you'll see the same families. There'll be ah. multiple generations of families. There tends to be a very skews south and skews rural mm-hmm. in terms of who's attracted to a military career. Yeah. And so I think that means that the officer corps tends to reflect the politics of the South. Got it. That being said, however, I rarely knew the political leanings of, of any of the military officers I worked with. And one of the great wonders of the U.S. military is that they truly are mm. nonpartisan mm. and they truly do respect political appointees. I mean, I used to compare my experiences as a political appointee in the Pentagon, which were all very positive, with friends of mine and other agencies who were constantly feeling like they were having to fight the bureaucracy. I did not get that feeling. People who I thought were very much comfortable, and it was part of their DNA, to respect civilian leadership, and I think that reflected itself in the good experience yeah. they had.
0: Yeah, and it's, that's actually a very good explanation. It's not that ex-military aren't necessarily Republican. It's not a causal direction. Mm-hmm. It's that, in fact, they come from backgrounds where they're more likely to be both Republican leaning and get attracted to serving in the military.
1: And, you know, traditionally, the Cold War War era, national security was more of a concern by sort of the Republicans, less of a concern by Democrats. As certainly after 1968, that was true, and I think that's beginning to change. I mean, I think national security yeah. is becoming interest to both parties, largely because the issues are less abstract and more real. So I think yeah. uh, people are, are more interested. So I think the next administration, there'll be a longer line for every one of those jobs mm. in, at the Pentagon, and not the short line that I saw when I was and,
0: seeking a position. Yeah, another thing that that's a little bit confusing is understanding the Republican slash pro-military segment of leadership in the country and how they're interacting or thinking about what's going on over the last two years under President Trump, who has upended purposely all sorts of things that I think were considered pretty close to Republican dogma, well, especially with respect to Russia.
1: And if you look at most of the never-Trumpers, the Republicans that are very hostile to the front Trump administration, yes. they have one thing very much in common. Almost all of them came from a career path that was in national security positions. So they were in state, they were in defense. So I think if you look at the most vocal anti-Trump Republicans, they tend to be people from the Republican national security kind of establishment.
0: Right. Interesting. But yet the Republican establishment is pretty supportive of whatever seems to be going on with respect to foreign, you know, global relations, national security and other things.
1: Although on some issues, as we saw with the policy issues on the Ukraine and with the Russia in particular, I think there is been some pushback even by Republicans who otherwise support President Trump.
0: Yeah. If we can go back also to something you said earlier in your career, you ran for Congress. Right. That was in Arizona? In Arizona. And that was the first time you had done that and you didn't win. I was in the legislature. I said would won two elections in the state senate. State senate. And then ran for Congress and lost. And
1: who did you lose to? A guy named Matt Salmon, who's a, also like me, was a state senator. Yeah. So, did he stick somebody, around? He sucked Around. He took a term pledge, and so he served, I believe, two terms. Really? To got to, left and then came back and served uh, two more terms.
0: Is that term limits when you come back? And Is that what it means, actually? Well, to... I don't know what pledge he took, but he yes, took seriously his his first What time frame are we talking about? Like, when was... He was in there from 94 to, and then he served six That's right. You were saying, so it was 94 that you lost right. that election. Yeah, people were talking about term limits then. Nobody talks about it these days, and it seemed to be like a great idea, except that the people in those seats don't exactly like that idea. And
1: and, and unlike Matt, most people who took the pledge didn't... They took the pledge pledge and they didn't even... Right.
0: Yeah, so what's the point of that pledge, right? Exactly. So So I think that's also one reason why these pledges became less common. Yeah, it is interesting, though. I do recall that this was something people talked a lot about, the discomfort and the anger towards Congress hasn't changed. It probably even increased no matter what side you're on, right? But we don't talk about term limits anymore. I think one reason
1: why is because the incumbents used to easily win, I think the survival rate of incumbents has actually gotten much more iffy. And so I think as a result, people feel like, gee, you know, I don't have to worry about term limits because I can actually, at the polling place, get rid of people I don't want. And that's Mm -hmm. I think that's happening, you know, both in the primaries and the general election. Clearly, there are some safe districts where you know the seat will be held by a Democrat or be held by a Republican. Mm -hmm. But my sense is there's a lot more churn in Congress than there has been in the past.
0: Yeah. And this is, would you say, despite the gerrymandering that's? that's dominated on both sides for a long time. I think the gerrymandering is
1: still there, but I think what's happened is that primaries have become much more important. You see incumbents being defeated in primaries. Not so much on the Democratic side, although Mm -hmm. it happens,
0: but on the Republican side, it's some very high-profile Republican leaders have been defeated in their primaries. That's true. So so this is actually not the actual election because if you're Republican-leaning or Democrat-leaning, you're probably going to win. It's who is your representative, who gets the character the torch. Right, exactly. Was it close to the election? No, I was destroyed. <laughs> it was, <laughs> I mean, it was uh,
1: 1994, so there was a...
0: Oh, it was Republican... 94, was the, there was a new Gingrich, right? Gingrich, that was, yeah, a... it, was, it was a big Republican year. So I didn't feel bad. I was
1: fighting the forces of history and lost. And I had served and respected Matt. We were very different politically, but mm-hmm. he was a good person who cared a lot about the district. So it ended up my, you know, getting the opportunity to work in the Pentagon. I met my wife working at the drug czar's office.
0: So mm-hmm. it all like, that well, well. <laughs> it worked out <all> well. <laughs> yeah, I have trouble understanding how that is, I could say, legitimate, legal, appropriate, but we should talk about the Constitution. And there have been some court cases that have gone, I guess, to the Supreme Court. So can you give us a quick primer on how this seems to be legal, that you can do a thing like this? A part of it's historical. It's a long
1: American tradition. So things that are long American traditions. It takes a while before you can really bring cases against them. And until recently, there was not any good mechanisms and standards by which you could judge whether or not a district with political gerrymandering um, violated a standard. I mean, for racial gerrymandering, there are some standards you can use. So I think it became more difficult with political gerrymandering. Recently, some statisticians have actually come up with some tests that can be used. I think the Supreme Court is traditionally very wary about getting involved in something as political as redistricting, and so they decided to just not get involved. But some states have been involved. Pennsylvania and North Carolina, their state Supreme Courts have mm-hmm. gotten involved, and they've actually applied these new kinds of standards to strike down district plans that mm-hmm. were viewed as too political. Why are standards
0: of the type you're talking about? Why are they so important in this
1: battle? If you have no standards and it's just you know what, what feels good, the danger is you're just just taking the politics from the legislature and moving it to the court. And also the courts don't like to be pulled into political disputes. If you have a standard that you can apply, a test you can apply that will lead to a result, regardless of whether the Democrats are on the winning side or the losing side the gerrymandering, then the courts feel more comfortable. It's no longer a political decision,
0: but it is a principled legal decision. So it's a way of setting some type of official or legitimate criteria so we could say, okay, we're gonna apply that criteria We think it's reasonable. And I imagine that that's been set for other court cases that have nothing to do with gerrymandering that's traditionally how the courts get comfortable with applying
1: sometimes vague constitutional standards. And I think in the the case of redistricting, it can be challenging. For example, we know that rural areas tend to vote more Republican, city areas tend to vote more Democrat. And so there's some natural kind of districting challenges you have because you already have Democrats tend to live near Mm Republican Democrats and Republicans Mm -hmm. living near Republicans. So it's a little harder to make those kinds of decisions. You have also other values at stake. So, for example, in Arizona, there were two large Indian tribal communities. There was the Navajo, which was a very large voting bloc. And right in the middle of the Navajo reservation was the Hopis. And they were two Native American communities that had very different interests. And so the Hopis, for many, many years, fought hard to be part of a different district than the Navajos. So their congressmen would not be beholden to the much more larger Navajos. So if you looked at the maps, it looked like a huge, bad gerrymander, because it looked like a giant third of the state in one district Mm -hmm. with a little hole in the middle, which was the Hopi Reservation. But that was actually not because of political gerrymandering. That was trying to balance the political interests of one community, the Hopis, with the political interests of another. In the end, that became unsustainable. So now they're all in the
0: same district. But do we have those kinds of tough No, no, I see. I see. Switching gears a little bit. You are a law clerk for Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. Yes. How did you get that gig? I applied to all the justices. You and how third? many tens of thousands of no other idea, law school graduates? As,
1: oh, a lot of people. But it was my third year of law school. I had already, I had not started a clerkship, but I already had a clerkship on the D.C. Circuit with Judge Harry Edwards. So my third year of law school, right after exams, uh, before grades came out, she called and invited me and a few others to interview. So I interviewed, and then a few days later, got a literally a letter in the mail inviting me to be her law clerk. How many law clerks? It varies a little bit, but mo- the traditional Chambers would have four. Justice O'Connor would have four law clerks. And
0: these are four, and is it a one-year term typically? Or some one, people it's
1: a, it's a on one-year it. term. Justice White at the time had at least one two-year clerk. There's flexibility, but traditionally it's a one-year job. Yeah. Traditionally it's after you've clerked for another judge, so you've had some experience doing the job. You know, Our Chambers was four people. We were two from Harvard, two from Stanford, two men, two women, and she did not hire ideologically, so mm-hmm. I think obviously. There were three Democrats, one Republican, hmm. and we were all moderate to liberal. In other years, she had a lot more conservative clerks, hmm. some years more liberal. That sounds so odd, doesn't it?
0: Because the law clerks do a lot of work to prepare.
1: But she's very confident of her own views. And it was very clear in our chambers who the judge was. <laughs> I think she liked having a diversity of experiences and a diversity of views yep. within her chambers. I think she thought it made, her, it made her a better justice, having people to the right and the left of her that helped keep her grounded in the arguments that she would face to make sure that she was not missing something that she decided
0: in yeah. cases. So what was she like personally to work for? She was your boss. She expected
1: us to work very hard. We were there a long time. I remember the computer system was a centralized system, and it would turn off at either 11 or midnight, and we would all be there. <laughs> until 11 or midnight, except on the weekends. But she was also very much, tried to be a mentor to mm-hmm. us. She would come back from Chambers and come back to Chambers after a conference, and would give us a detailed, live below account of what happened in the conference with where they decided the cases. So we had a good idea where all the justices were. We, you know, had a sense that we were learning about history,
0: mm-hmm. watching
1: it being made. Mm-hmm. And then she also, it was a fun part of the job. Every Saturday before our all argument, we would sit together and talk about the cases that we're gonna be hearing the next week. And she would bring in lunch that she had prepared and we mm-hmm. would eat lunch in the middle of this. And she would tell great stories about her time in Arizona. She took us to museums. We went on a field trip to Baltimore, went to an Orioles game and went to some local museums. Whenever there's a new exhibit of the Smithsonian, she would get us a private tour. It was a fun experience
0: and also a great working yeah, experience. Yeah, it sounds that way. And is your sense that other justices took a similar type of role and-
1: It really varied. I can remember it was very common for justices clerks to call us knowing that we got the best blow by blow account of what occurred, asking us for a debrief. And sometimes they would say, We're writing the opinion. Can you tell us are we affirming or reversing? They wouldn't even know What what do you mean? They knew that their justice was assigned the opinion, but had no idea whether they're writing the opinion one way or the other. They didn't know which side had ultimately. At what point do they know such a thing? That's They would call us. So I think different justices provided a very different experience Uh for all.
0: And Justice O'Connor was a great experience. Yeah, no, it sounds that way as a real mentor. There were four of you, but every year there's another four. And she right. served on the Supreme Court for a long time. Over many? 20 years. Over yes. 20 years. So we're talking about you know, over 80 people. Did any of them become judges or yes, there's senior judges? Of, well, a fact? lot
1: of judges, actually. We have, I think, of judges in the 11th Circuit, judges on the 9th Circuit. I think probably virtually every circuit court has
0: a former Oklahoma clerk. Is it common for Supreme Court justices to have actually been law clerks for a Supreme Court justice? It's common now. I think it was less
1: common traditionally. I think Justice Frankfurter and Justice Jackson had had clerks that became Justice Rehnquist was a Jackson clerk. But right now you've got several of the justices that are full of law clerks.
0: Yeah. Was there ever any concern, because now I'm projecting into what people think about what I think about today, which is an imbalanced Supreme Court relative to, I don't know about how long, but for Mm -hmm. as long as I, I know, with more conservatives than liberals, and the swing—the so-called swing vote—is maybe Chief Justice Roberts, or I was reading an article that was Elena Kagan of all things, right. who's quite liberal, which really tells you something. So, a question really is about Sandra uh, Justice O'Connor: Did she think about or share with you her views about the legitimacy of the court? That's not the only word to describe it, but legitimacy in that it has to represent America and can't be too far in any one direction. And actually, that's Quite an interesting question I'm thinking about as I ask you. And what is the role of the Supreme Court? Is it to lead? Is it to represent where America is at any point in time? And how do you think about those things?
1: I think that's sort of the political battles we have whenever there's a justice is every justice has a different philosophy. And Justice O'Connor was very much in the tradition of a few other justices, like Justice Harlan, Justice Powell, who was probably her best friend on the court when I was there, where they may have been conservative and they certainly were conservative, but they tended to take each case by itself and try to provide as narrow a ruling as possible on that case, recognizing that they need to watch what happens to the results that they make. The big swings are where you see disruption, where they can really make a big mistake. So she was not ideological in, in her approach to cases. I mean, she clearly had points of view. When I was there, she was a pretty reliable vote for the, with the conservative whenever there was a 5-4 decision. Not always, but she was. The, when the court moved, she stayed where she was, and so she became the, the swing vote. But I think her pra- she had a very pragmatic approach to the law, realizing that people rely on, on decisions and is better off to not make grand pronouncements or beyond what you need to
0: say to resolve that case. What do you think about the role that Chief Justice Roberts has taken on over the... I mean, it's been a while, but it certainly became... I was about to say it became clear. It depends on how you think about these things. It looked like it became clear when there was this the case on Obamacare and there was a chance to kill it in the court and Justice Roberts sided with the liberal side. I think he's what I would call an
1: institutionalist. Mm-hmm. That he views part of his job as the chief justice to make sure that the court doesn't stray so far in one direction or another mm-hmm. that it loses the trust of the American people. It's not what he said, so maybe we need to take a face value of what he actually said in the opinion. Mm-hmm. But I think if you can, one way to read what he did in that case was try to find a way to resolve the case in a way that would be
0: least disruptive to how people. Would yeah. the court. And he was really harshly criticized mm-hmm. by conservative media, almost in total shock. I remember reading an editorial in the Wall Street Journal, right. not one, but many about this. So to what extent are justices swayed or influenced or even think about the political wins that are out there and the press as well? I think they are more insulated from the give and takes of
1: politics than you might expect. They have a lifetime appointment. They may be appointed by a Democrat or Republican, but it's a very, it tends to be a more collegial court. So my sense is that it's less Democrat, Republican, and more just different judicial philosophies. And so a person with a different way of approaching a case is going to resolve it perhaps differently in how they read the Constitution, how Mm -hmm. they read statutes. So I think that results in kind of Mm splish you see. So I think it's less sort of Politics to the big P and more sort of judicial philosophy. No, and part of it, though, it may be. Partly a somewhat new phenomena in that for a long time, there was not the self identifying, I'm a conservative jurist or I'm a liberal jurist. That's changed in law schools now. There's the Federalist Society for Conservative hmm. Law Students, there's the Constitutional Society for more liberal clerks. And so I think there's more intentional thinking about judicial philosophy very early in people's career. That sort of started when I was in law school. Huh. The generations of judges appointed in the last 10 years. My generation and a little bit afterwards, I think, were reflective of the fact that they were self-identifying and going to conferences and writing articles and journals mm-hmm. that reflected one view or the other. And the conservatives organized the Federal Society long before liberals organized a counter-organization. And to this day, I think the Federal Society is probably a more effective organization.
0: It was making me think about how the entire country has become more polarized in almost any dimension you want to look at, and that. Is as reflected in your example, even in law school, now you're picking a side, which I think we're going to continue to see play out for decades to come.
1: I think it varies issue to issue. And the best example is compare the abortion issue to the gay marriage issue. The abortion issue remains a highly charged issue in our society. As long as it does, it's gonna remain a highly charged legal issue as well. Gay marriage, the public has gone so far supportive of gay marriage that my prediction is even though we're gonna have a very conservative court for by the next generation, there'll be no effort to undo the decisions about gay marriage. Gay marriage is very quickly. Been adopted as the standard, and whether people in their private moments in the court might want to disagree with the decision, there's no appetite to do so. In some sense, what's happening in the larger culture can have you know, a big impact on what the court decides to
0: take or not take. That is such an interesting perspective because there are people that believe in a strict reading of that Constitution. Right. Of course, the Constitution doesn't say much about this issue about gay marriage and many other issues that for which there have been cases that have been decided.
1: When example from the Rehnquist years was that William Rehnquist was a long-term critic of the Miranda decision about giving pe- having to give people their rights. Yes. That was beyond what the Constitution required. And there was a lot of you know conservative energy on this issue in the 1960s. Mm. But when Rehnquist was actually faced with the decision to overturn Miranda, he stepped back and basically said, this has been too ingrained in how we do things, that it would be wrong to, even though he thought it was originally wrongly decided, it was was too ingrained in our legal system to undo it.
0: So there's some sense where precedent matters and also where we are as a society. Yeah, I mean, there's an element of fairness almost in that. And do you think that's continuing today?
1: Yeah, I, I think that the best examples, I, although there, there may be decisions on the margins of gay marriage, mainly dealing with baking cakes for a gay marriage, those kinds of religion issues. I think the core issue of whether there is a constitutional right to marriage that would include same-sex marriage is settled and there's no energy in the court to try to yeah. undo it.
0: How powerful is the Chief Justice? What does he, could be a she, but I think it's always been a he. What do they do? Where does that power come from?
1: Their main power on the court is their ability to decide who will write the majority opinion if they're in the majority. Which is one reason why some chief justices are far less conservative or far less liberal when they're the chief justice mm-hmm. than when they are just an ordinary justice. And one reason why is if you're always on the losing side, there's no power in being the chief justice. The chief justice only has power when he's in the majority. So sometimes they'll provide the fifth vote or a sixth vote on an issue that where they may otherwise disagree so they can do damage control and assign the opinion to someone that they know will write a more narrow opinion. So that's the biggest power of the chief justice. And then there's the other power of the chief justice is more administrative running the courts. But in terms of how the nine justices decide
0: cases, it's the right to assign the opinion writing of the majority if they are in the majority. If they're in the majority. So if They are not in the majority. Who gets to decide that? The most senior
1: person in the majority. In the majority. Rehnquist was a chief justice for the first year, the year I clerked. And he continued to vote the way he had voted in the past. Mm -hmm. As a result, because he was oftentimes in the minority, Justice Brennan, the leading liberal on the court at the time, the most senior liberal on the court, was more often in the majority and was actually assigning opinions. In subsequent years, you could see a moderating behavior by Chief Justice Rehnquist mm-hmm. where in close cases he would oftentimes surprise people Remember, decision mm-hmm. on and is a good
0: one, which we think he
1: probably did in order to retain the big power he has, which is the
0: uh, right to assign. And is it correct to say that if you side with the part of the court that is going to win, the other side has very little... I mean, they can write a dissenting. Right. Can anyone write a dissenting opinion? Yeah,
1: anyone can write a dissenting, anyone can write a concurring opinion. They don't have to sign on to the the court's decision. So the trick when you're assigned an opinion, what you try to do is write an opinion that your colleagues in the majority can all join. They may write short, I concur to emphasize this point, What you want to avoid, but it still happens, are opinions where people say, I joined parts one and seven <laughs> of this decision, but I do not join these sections, and they write a long opinion explaining why. You don't want to have a fractured majority. You don't want to have an opinion where you have different votes on different parts of your opinion, but that will sometimes happen. Yeah. But the trick is to try to write an opinion that will meet the needs of all.
0: of So the, the actual party. opinions are highly influential in subsequent legal cases. Yes. Not just the decision that's actually made, but the thinking behind whatever it,
1: people are. And usually the Supreme Court especially will announce a rule or an approach that they think you should take in future cases. They're trying to give direction not only to the, that case, mm-hmm. but direction to the courts of appeals and the district courts in future cases, yeah. how
0: they should approach those. Right. Because if you bring it back up to us, this is what we're going to say. So you might as well think about it before it gets here. Exactly. And what role did you observe the personalities of the people on the court in terms of how they interacted as a group as well as the decisions they made? There
1: was surprisingly little direct communication between the justices. They tended to communicate in writing, and they tended to communicate sometimes through the clerk network. But there were some exceptions. I mean, Justice Brennan was, you know, he would come into the chambers a few times to talk to my boss Mm. to try to convince her to go one way or the other. Mm. He was very much that way. Know Justice Powell and Justice O'Connor would oftentimes meet together because they were they just were very similar in their view of cases and they would sort of compare notes. That happened quite a bit. And I think I was there Justice Scalia's first year and I saw that he did not do things the way that it's Mm -hmm. traditionally been done, Mm -hmm. and that kind of antagonized a lot of the other justices. And so you, for for example, for example, he was in the habit of writing very nitpicky memos Mm -hmm. about opinions that went beyond just just philosophy, but would suggest alternative ways of saying things. It was just at a level of detail that just wasn't done. Now, not to say his views weren't helpful in revising an opinion, but it just was not done before and was irritating to
0: some of the other justices. Right, right. And did it have any impact? I don't know if it had impact on... Either him directly or others and how they interacted I think with it, him. it affected maybe some of his initial
1: relationships. He ultimately developed a lot of close friendships on the court. Yeah. He clearly had close friendships even before. Four with just judges who then later became justices, Ginsburg is quite the best example. They were yeah. very close in the D.C. Circuit, and they were very close on the
0: Supreme Court. Are justices friends with senators as well? Some, and some are yeah. I mean, some members I mean, of the cabinet,
1: and yeah, I think some people came from the Washington community and sort of kept those sure. friendships. Justice O'Connor was really a stranger to Washington, mm-hmm. although she was as a first woman justice, you know, immediately became very highly in demand on the social circuit. Mm-hmm. And so she became friends with a lot of people right, you know, right. clearly the you know Barry Goldwater was a very close friend from the Arizona days and he would come by our chambers quite a bit sure
0: and a classic mentor from Arizona yeah, exactly yeah back in the towards the end of 2019 you also have been outspoken both on Twitter and I'm sure many other places a series of decisions President Trump made on pardoning several naval officers that either were indicted or alleged to have done some things and you're really against that that decision or those decisions by President Trump. Can you tell us a little bit about the what happened and then after that your point of view on it? It's important to
1: understand, and to a surprising degree a lot of Americans understand, is that
0: there are norms in international law that this
1: country not only has agreed to, but we were advocates for creating them in the first place, for how we fight war. The main point is to distinguish between civilians and military members and also to only have as much force as necessary to meet our military obligations. So it's illegal to kill a prisoner of war because prisoner of war is incapacitated. There's no military reason to kill them. And it's illegal to target a civilian. And this is not just because some liberals across the world decided this was a great idea. This is a tradition that arose by the military itself. The first example of this kind of code that was used was not an international law code. It was actually a code that Abraham Lincoln imposed on the Union soldiers called the Lieber Code, which imposed these obligations. And they've since been accepted by most of the world. And it's important to the military for two reasons. One is the professionalism of the force, to make sure that they're disciplined and they fight as a professional force and not as a raving maniacs. Mm-hmm. And the second is reciprocity. If we treat prisoners of war poorly, our enemy will. Now, sometimes I will anyway, but in World War II, the Germans actually treated our prisoners of war much better than we expected, and largely because we did the same with their prisoners. So it's important for a lot of reasons. And so it is in- deeply ingrained in every officer and every soldier the need to fight war by these rules. And when people don't fight the war by these rules, it's important that they be investigated and if they're found and that they be uh, charged and have a jury of their peers decide whether or not they should be convicted. Mm-hmm. So what happened in each of one of these cases is that these individuals were accused of not uh, meeting these norms. They killed prisoners of war, they killed civilians. This is in in Iraq? Both Iraq and Afghanistan. And they violated these rules. Basically, they committed murder. Murder in a way that that was beyond what would be allowed normal military conduct. In almost every single case, it was not some human rights group that raised the flag about their violations. It was the people in their own unit who were so disturbed by their conduct that they um, brought Mm. to the attention of the Mm. chain of command. And the military was very proud of the fact. That they took action, they prosecuted, and in three of these cases, they got convictions. In one case, they got a conviction only on a minor offense. But the panel, the, the group appears, military people, not civilians, military people decided what the punishment would be. So the system worked. The system is made not by civilians. It's made by military members. And what's disturbing is by the president pardoning these folks, mm-hmm. largely because of what he apparently heard on Fox News or because of the advocacy of some conservative advocates, he sent the message that one, military members do go berserk and it's okay. And two, that it's okay that, to, to violate these norms. And three, he's showing a complete disrespect for the military justice system. To be fair, if the military justice system is one of the most pro-criminal defendant system out there. It is much better to be, if you're a criminal defendant, to be a criminal defendant the military justice system it is much more weighted to protect your rights than being charged in a normal criminal mm-hmm. court. So the fact that these courts still convicted people, and again by not a jury of civilians, but a jury of fellow warriors, the disrespect that's shown for the military justice system will hurt the military. And the Navy in particular has been growingly concerned with a sense that the some of the special forces may be getting not getting the message about the need to follow the rules. Mm-hmm. And this, the mm-hmm. fear is is going to hurt their efforts to make sure that people remember the, the rules
0: of the game that they follow. So, I mean, there's several things to unpack about this. First, you mentioned presumably what you know the president saw on Fox News. What kind of argument could be made by conservatives who have, as we talked about earlier, are closely aligned with military values that would justify this type of
1: The argument seems to be made is that, gee, this is a time of war. It's a tough situation. You're not there. People make bad decisions. Decisions and we ought to forgive them their bad decisions. The reason we have a military justice system that is run the way it's run is because. It is vital when you fight wars that you have a disciplined force, that they fire when they're told to fire, that they advance when they're told to advance, Mm -hmm. that they stop firing when they stop firing. We do not want this idea that we want a military that goes berserk just misunderstands really the nature of modern warfare and the need for discipline. So the argument that, gee, we need to forgive people who break the rules in very tough circumstances is just
0: not understanding how dangerous that is to discipline. So as I understand, some of the sequence of events, they were convicted, There's three of them, or four really, and counting the more minor offense, but they were convicted and they were pardoned. And then, was it the Secretary of the Navy was going to overturn the pardon? One individual was actually
1: uh, not pardoned. He had been convicted of displaying himself with an enemy killed in action, which violates both U.S. law, also violates international law. And the jury convicted him of that offense, and they and the jury, not the judge, the jury decided that his punishment for that offense was the maximum allowed, which would be to reduce his rank. And so that's what was imposed. What the president did is he didn't pardon, he simply removed the punishment. He removed so the, the conviction remained. And for anyone convicted of a crime, before they retire, there's a board that decides whether or not, one, if you're a SEAL, do you keep your status as a SEAL, mm-hmm. which is an honor. And there's a board of SEALs that make that decision. And so the Navy Secretary and the Navy community, their view was decision about whether he would keep his seal ought to be done by the seal community itself. Mm-hmm. And they would decide whether his behavior merited keeping the seal or not keeping the seal. And who knows what they would have decided, but we will never know because that process was stopped by the president intervening and making the decision himself.
0: Is that what led to the—is it the Secretary of the Navy announced his resignation? Yes, I
1: mean, and it's hard. Secretary of Defense says the reason he was asked to resign was because he was trying to do a deal with the White House that would have allowed the process to go forward by guaranteeing the end result of that process. The Secretary of Navy has, a, has a, I guess, different
0: views. Yeah, and so the fallout from this has got to be pretty significant in the forces in the armed forces. Do you think that it will affect how people think about their jobs?
1: My sense is that for the vast majority of the members of the military, they take very seriously their moral and legal obligations. And yeah. they don't act simply because something might be punished in the future. They really are going to continue to follow along. But like any other community, you know, there are people on the edges, which is why we have a military justice system in the first mm-hmm. place, for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. When people do something wrong, we need to mm-hmm. punish them and we need to deter that behavior. So at the margins, my concern would be that it sends the wrong message to military members about the seriousness of the obligations to comply with the law of war. Yeah, I think it also damages our veterans because it sort of sends the message that military members are weak and incapable of hmm. meeting the values and the laws that govern their behavior. And it feeds into a stereotype of members of the military as being in, not in control of their behavior. Because it seems to say uh, the message that we should forgive these people because they were in war suggests that they were not capable of doing what military members routinely do every day in right. very tough situations, which right. yeah. is comply with their, their obligations.
0: Yeah. And the other puzzle here for me, and something we've touched on already, is why there hasn't been a bigger fallout with respect to traditional supporters of the military where really, you know, a code has been broken here and one that should not be broken.
1: Yeah, I am watching, I haven't, he's been quiet, but Lindsey Graham, who's been very supportive of the president, I've been, I don't think he's in on this issue. He's a retired Air Force JAG hmm. officer. He's a former judge. He's been a big supporter in the past of a robust JAG Corps and a robust military justice system. I'm wondering why he has not in. Maybe he has privately, but, I mean, this was not a controversial decision with military leadership. You know, 201, every senior leader told the president that he ought not get involved in these cases, that it would harm good order and discipline of the military.
0: And it's one of many such examples, really, of uh, kind of breaking the rules at the very top. And it's interesting also that the president, now we're talking in terms of the Constitution, is the commander-in-chief, which means that he or she can do this anytime they want. He, his
1: orders have to be lawful in order to be followed. So if he were, for example, to order the prisoners of war be executed tomorrow. The Constitution may give him the power to give that order, but that order is unlawful and should not be obeyed by uh, members of the military. So there are limits on that commander-in-chief authority. In this case, he does have the power to interfere with the military justice system to some
0: extent, and to, but just because he has the power doesn't mean it, it's smart to do so. Right, and it's, it sounds like there's actually not that much of robust checks and balances in this particular vertical line of the military. Of, of the country right but it'd be clear
1: if you were to do the opposite if you were if there were a case of someone accused of a crime and he was set to order the panel to convict mm-hmm. that clearly would be unlawful but again we have a system military system where the law is favorable to defendants, so that it prohibits the commanders above the panel from interfering with the panel's decision to order conviction or to order punishment. Even to make statements about it, it can undo a decision,
0: mm-hmm. but it doesn't offer legal protections on the Lee NC side. Right. So when you were growing up, when you were a kid, did you ever think your career would end up going in the direction that it did? Do people even think about that? I mean, some people, it's really remarkable. Some people, very few, when they're younger, I don't mean three or four or 10, but 12, 14, 16, and they know their path, and they follow it, and they follow it, and they actually get there. I've now done a lot of podcasts, and I ask a question like this, and it's maybe one out of 25 that says that, so I'm kind of anticipating your answer.
1: If you asked me in high school what I was going to be, I was going to be a doctor. If you asked me my sophomore year of college, I was going to be a scientist, and it was not until my senior year that I made the decision to make a change Mm -hmm. and, and to apply to law school. And even then that, I only applied to three law schools. The idea, gee, if I get in these law schools, you know, there'll be a message. But what triggered the change? I had studied abroad in Poland for two semesters oh. my junior year, so I was away from the lab, dealing with some really interesting issues of international politics, yeah. and I had always been really interested in the liberal arts and history. I had been on the debate team, so I, I kept that. It was not just in the lab. And I just decided to take stock, and I realized that I love studying science but i didn't enjoy the loneliness of, yeah. the, of the lab and that what really excited me were not these scientific issues but these larger political and social issues right. and so that led me to decide right. that being a lawyer was a better path for what i wanted to sure. do. but even then I, if you told me i was going to be a lawyer for the air force that was far removed from what i thought yeah. I, would, I would end up doing
0: yeah and in fact when you describe how that happened you were in some, I mean, of course, you were qualified, but you were in the right place at the right time, and you had various social connections that elevated you to one of the key finals. Exactly. Yeah, which happens often, but it doesn't happen without the talent to start with. <laughs> so you mentioned uh, you met your wife around the time that you had uh, lost the battle for Congress, or just after that, perhaps.
1: Yeah, I moved to Washington and worked at the drug czar's office as the chief lawyer for the drug czar when Barry McCaffrey was the drug czar. And then my wife was the Columbia expert for the drugstore's office. We didn't start dating until after I left to go to the Army General Counsel's position. I mentioned Tom Umberg, who helped me get my job. Tom and his wife, Robin, also pushed hard for me to start dating Allison. <laughs> so he takes credit for both my uh, uh, my switch to the Pentagon and my marriage. Yeah, very
0: nice. And was, can I ask what push hard adds up to?
1: <laughs> well, I call, I, her, I call her, come on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we went on a trip to Panama for the transfer of the Panama Canal from the United States to Panama. It was done on the New Year's Eve, 1999. And on that trip, that was sort of a theme that I ought to
0: call and ask my wife out. And I did. And you did. And the rest is history. And you had already met, you knew each other, you no, were kind right, of exactly. the same sort of, exactly. you, you know it also reminds me a little bit of his. Jake Sullivan, who we mentioned earlier, told me that Hillary Clinton was looking to marry him off somewhere and kept trying to make a connection.
1: (laughs) Justice O'Connor would do the same with all of her She
0: set me up on several dates... When I moved to Arizona, for people that funny, she. Knew. Funny about that. Do you think that today there would be anything wrong with that type of behavior? Because we're so sensitive about everything in the workplace. And I don't know that it would be, but. I think the way she did. I mean, this is after I had left. It's in Arizona. Sure, sure. sure. So she would say, "Here's somebody." I think you would. I enjoy mean, it, it makes it makes sense, and I, I'm reminded of the Jake Sullivan story. But it just occurred to me that you know we have such a work environment now, and there's a lot of good reasons why we're being as careful as we are. Right. But would it be appropriate for your boss to encourage you to go out on a date? I don't know if that's actually appropriate anymore, which is a loss. Right. Imagine you can go back in time to when you were 21 years old and you just kind of sidle up next to your 21-year-old self and you lean over and you say, you know, there's really something you need to know. There's a little bit of advice I want to give you, giving yourself, that I think will really make a difference for you. What would that be? I think it would be be open to new opportunities
1: and be willing to take risks. Lawyers are very, by their very nature, the most risk-averse people in the world. Sure. Because they join a profession. It used to be you would join a law firm and you would retire from that law firm. That was sort of career path. That's changed. and It's become a less like that. But I think that all the good opportunities I got were ones where I was willing to take a risk. A risk to run for office, mm-hmm. a risk to take a job in Washington, and a risk to go to the Pentagon after having no experience there. So I think that would be my biggest advice to myself is to be open to opportunities, be willing to take risks. And I can look back on some decisions I made where I didn't take a risk. Mm-hmm. For example, being a politician in Arizona as a Democrat probably would was not a smart decision because I went more for the safe option of the law firm that I wanted to work at. If I was serious about a political career, I would have gone back to my home state of Oregon, but would, which would have been far more risky from a legal or professional point of view, mm. but might very well have made the opportunities for
0: yeah, it's a a more liberal world. population, exactly. Oregon, than Arizona. So I think, you know, sometimes we
1: take, you need to take stock of mm-hmm. what you really want. And if I really wanted a political career, you take the mm-hmm. legal professional risk and move to the safer political district.
0: Right. And sometimes when you look back at those types of decisions, you kind of can reverse engineer your thinking. Right. You may have thought this and this, but this is what you did. And that speaks volumes, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. Very interesting. Chuck Blanchard, thank you so much for being on the SIDCast. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. I
1: enjoyed it as well
0: thanks for listening to the Sidcast I am so appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode and I'd love to hear from you if you have any questions suggestions for guests or any suggestions at all please contact me via our website www.thesidcast.com or email me directly sidfinkelstein at gmail.com if you like what you heard I hope you'll tune in to another one of our episodes and please give us a five star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. This sitcast is produced by the podcast Laundry Production Company and always recorded live and in person with our guest of the week.